Welcome to Black to Nature, the podcast. I'm Professor Stephanie Dunning, and I'll be your host. It's been a while since I published an episode, and that's because I've been really busy. So I have a backlog of interviews that I've done with people that I really want to get out there. And I have um, spoken to some other really wonderful scholars and thinkers who are scheduled at some amorphous point in the future for an interview. But it has been a time of busyness. It has been a time of increased work for me. And so I just haven't had the bandwidth to sit down and put together an episode, which I love to do. I really love the process of, of picking the music and recording clips and reading people's work and editing this all together. Like it's a really fun project for me, but I just haven't had the time. But I'm glad to have the time today to put together this episode with my colleague, Sandy Garner, who's going to talk to us about her work with indigenous communities in South Dakota. And even though I conducted this interview with her back in the summer, and I had totally intended to produce the episode before now, it seems like because we are a day before the Thanksgiving holiday, that's when I'm recording this, that this is a really good time to um, put this episode out there. Because I hope that we will all consider the full implication of uh, this holiday. At the same time that I want us to sort of think about colonial and imperial conquest and land theft and genocide and all of the aggressive tactics of empire that have been leveraged against the indigenous people of this land Europeans would call the Americas, I also know that for many of us, at least for me, Thanksgiving historically in my own life has been a time when I gathered with my family. It has been a time when I got to see my grandmother or I got to see my cousins and I got to eat the good foods that my grandmother could make and only my grandmother could make. So it was a, it was a, it's a, it's a holiday that for me has two kind of valences on the one hand, historically, it's it's a horrible crime um, that we are sort of toasting to. And on the other hand, I have my childhood memories of it being a time when I would gather with my grandmother. And I think we all struggle with the dual inheritance of that, our personal inheritance of uh, these holiday meals with family members and also the burden of history. I would like to suggest that the burden of history is more important than our individual experiences because we have yet to redress the historical wound, not just in relation to one thing, but in relation to everything. So we haven't redressed the historical wound of Thanksgiving and of the founding of this country for it, for the indigenous people. And we haven't redressed the wounds of slavery either. So we have a lot of work to do, and we can't allow our merrymaking to convince us to forget what really happened here. (laughs) 
Sandy Garner is Associate Professor of Global and Intercultural Studies and the inaugural Chief Floyd Leonard Faculty Fellow of the Miamia Center at Miami University. She received her PhD from The Ohio State University. Dr. Garner has developed an interactive and long-term research partnership with the Eastern Shawnee Tribe of Oklahoma. Among her publications, Professor Garner has published To Come to a Better Understanding, Complicating the Two Worlds Trope in Beyond Two Worlds, Aztec Dance, Transnational Movements, Conquest of a Different Sort in the Journal of American Folklore. She has a book titled To Come to a Better Understanding, Medicine Men and Clergy Meetings on the Rosebud Reservation, 1973 to 1978 from the University of Nebraska Press which examines a five-year-long dialogue between Lakota medicine men and Catholic priests to consider the possibilities and limitation of intercultural understanding. We're going to pick up at a point in my conversation with Sandy where I'm talking about some of the things I saw on my trip during the summer out west, including monuments such as Bear Lodge, called Devil's Tower by this country, and Mount Rushmore, among other things. I lived in South Dakota for over 20 years. You know, when you go see Mount Rushmore, which I didn't want to go see, but my neighbor was like, we're right here. We might as well go see Mount Rushmore. And I was like, all right, fine. So we went to Mount Rushmore, which is underwhelming. Those are like four of the most traumatic presidents that indigenous people have had to face. So it's a interesting. And it, you know, it is underwhelming when you see it. Like it just isn't as big as the pictures make it look. But it was, but it also, you know, after Devil's Tower, I was like, so really there was like, the nation was on a rampage across the West to write itself into the land, into a land, a purloined land. Um, So then by the time you get to Yellowstone, you know, I was basically livid. I also went to the um, Little Bighorn Battlefield. Oh. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to say that it all happened because, like, the universe wanted me to know. It wanted me to viscerally feel, you know, the ways in which nature as an aesthetic object has been used as, like, a tool of oppression against Turtle Island indigenous people. One of the places that I visited when I went out west was South Dakota. It was a state I had never been to before and never thought that I wanted to go to. I visited two national parks there, Badlands National Park and also Wind Cave National Park. Sandy lived in South Dakota for many years and here she talks to us about her time living there. I'm was a tribal spouse to a Lakota Mm -hmm. and we lived on Rosebud Sioux Indian Reservation Mm -hmm. and it was a spiritual family so it uh, historically generations of medicine men Mm -hmm. and we traveled a lot I traveled all across the country going to different native communities but we spend all summer every summer in South Dakota on the reservation because that's the height of Sunday season, which is the highest ritual that the 
Lakota hat. So I lived out there. I've got two kids and I don't know, probably 14 grandkids that still live out there. And um, so I'm in very close contact with what's going on out there, what continues to go out on out there, the history and the, um, the Lakota storytelling about the place, right? Yeah. So yes, I love it out there. I've been, uh, we used to Sundance in the middle of the Black Hills, a, a area called Peshla, which means bald head. And that's where the buffalo would come to in the winter time. And it, it really is kind of a buffalo graveyard. We danced there for a number, Sundance there for a number of years. So we did all those ceremonies throughout the Black Hills. The only place I have not been is Devil's Tower, which I wish I would have taken advantage of that because that's not part of the ceremonial track. Yeah. So in Lakota cosmology, you know, the Black Hills is where the Lakota emerged from the earth in an area called Wind Cave. Yes. And that's like, that's the creation story. So. In the winter times, the, the huge tribe would break up into smaller, what we call Tayoshpayes, which are smaller family groups, mm -hmm. and go out into the plains to live in smaller communities. So it, they help their survival. But they would watch the constellations in the sky. And the first one that set them in motion was the rising of the Pleiades, which there are all sorts of stories around the seven sisters for the Lakota. And when the Pleiades showed on the horizon at sunrise, Lakota bands from all over the plains would travel first to Harney Peak. And there they would do a ceremony, which is the return of the thunders ceremony, calling in springtime for the spring solstice. So that's when they would enter the Black Hills. And still today, my grandkids went this past spring solstice, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so it, it is a ceremony that is continued. And then between spring solstice and the summer equinox, the bands traveled mirroring the constellations arriving on the horizon to various sacred sites around the Black Hills. And they still do that today. And they end up on summer solstice at Devil's Tower. And they hold a Sundance there on summer solstice every year, even today. And as you noted in your discussion, there's a lot of contestation over place there. Um, but Charlotte Black Elk, who is the great-granddaughter of Nicholas Black Elk, she holds a Sundance there still today on summer solstice. Wow, that's, that's, that's so, that sounds so beautiful and such a rich um, relationship um, to place that I feel is the whole American enterprise is designed to undermine. I want to pause here and acknowledge fatigue, my fatigue and your fatigue. 
It's November 23rd, 2021, the day before Americans celebrate a holiday they call Thanksgiving. It's just a few days after Kyle Rittenhouse has been found not guilty. I'm watching the debates about this case rage on across social media and in the news. I am tired. Listening to this conversation, which is structured largely by my experiences visiting six national parks this summer, I feel tired thinking about the history of how we got those national parks. Underneath that fatigue is sadness. Nicholas Black Elk, who Sandy mentions, wrote quite a few books. In one of them, Black Elk Speaks, he wrote, a long time ago, My father told me what his father told him, that there was once a Lakota holy man called Drinks Water who dreamed what was to be, and this was long before the coming of the Wasichu. He dreamed that the four-leggeds were going back into the earth and that a strange race had woven a spider's web all around the Lakotas, and he said, when this happens, you shall live in square gray houses in a barren land and beside those square gray houses, you shall starve. They say he went back to Mother Earth soon after he saw this vision, and it was sorrow that killed him. You can look about you now and see that he meant these dirt-roofed houses we are living in, and that all the rest was true. Sometimes dreams are wiser than waking. David Silverman, author of the book, This Land is Their Land, The Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the Troubled History of Thanksgiving, argues that the story of Thanksgiving is a myth riddled with historical inaccuracies. In an interview with the Smithsonian Magazine, he says, quote, the Thanksgiving myth is the myth that friendly Indians, unidentified by tribe, welcome the pilgrims to America teach them how to live in this new place, sit down to dinner with them, and then disappear. They hand off America to white people so they can create a great nation dedicated to liberty, opportunity, and Christianity for the rest of the world to profit. That's the story. It's a story about Native people conceding to colonialism. It's bloodless, and in many ways, an extension of the ideology of manifest destiny. This notion that the United States came into being with the agreement of the indigenous people through treaties and other agreements that were honored by the European settlers is the fantasy that many people want to have about how this country came into being. Furthermore, many people would like to believe that the contestation over this land is over and that the indigenous people have been defeated. But this is not true. The struggle continues. The first treaty between the Lakota and the government was in 1851. And at that time, Lakota covered what is today a five-state area, Nebraska, South Dakota, North Dakota, Wyoming, and Montana. It was huge. So this first treaty dispossessed them and reduced their territory to about 60 million acres. 
the big treaty that where there's a lot of contestation over is the Treaty of 1868. And by that time, it's the Treaty of Fort Laramie, Wyoming, and the government still kept the Black Hills as part of Lakota lands. But only six years later, General Custer goes into the Black Hills with a huge military force, ostensibly to look for a site to build a fort to protect the people that are working on the railroad lines. Mm -hmm. In reality, he's looking for gold because they had already had rumors of gold in the Black Hills. You know, he, he is killed at uh, what we refer to as greasy grass, right? Yeah. And um, during that battle, the Battle of Little Bighorn, and the year after that, that becomes a big state because the natives win that battle, right? Yes, they do. And they decimate, you know, yes. the America. I think that's the only time in U.S. history that somebody has beaten the Americans, so-called, you know, Americans. Yes. But one year later, the U.S. government seized the Black Hills right. against that treaty. Yes. The Lakota have fought that legally through the court systems ever since that time, saying they can't do that. They can't. The, our treaty says this. That belongs to us. And it was not until 1980 it made it all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, you're right. Those Black Hills were seized illegally. Okay. But you know, People have moved there and settled there, and we can't just take that land away from them. So instead, we'll pay you for the Black Hills at the market value price of the time when they were seized, plus accrued interest. So I record most of my interviews on Zoom, and what happened here is that the internet connection became unstable. And so it cut off what Sandy was saying. And what Sandy is saying here is that even though the Lakota won their case in the Supreme Court because of the United States violation of the treaty, they offered to pay them for the Black Hills at the market rate at the time that the treaty was written in the 1800s. So obviously they received far less than the current value of the land. So the primary kind of philosophical value of the Lakota is we're all related. Matakwiyawasi, we are all related. They're not just talking about human beings. They're talking about plants and animals and especially the land. And that land is the center of their existence. They call it the heart of it all. And even point out that satellite images of the Black Hills looks like a literal human heart if you if you look at that picture right so that's the heart of it all so even though five of the poorest counties five of the top 10 poorest counties in the united states are on lakota reservations scattered around in south dakota 
Pine Ridge is number one. Rosebud, I think, is number three of the poorest counties. They refuse to take the money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They won't touch it. Every year they have elections. The federal government sends out lawyers to try to talk them into taking the money. They have votes. They say, no, we want the land. So as they have kind of, not that where they're at, that there's much opportunity to make money, but as they get their hands on money, they are buying up small tracts. But these sacred sites for them, there, there's several, probably a half dozen that are very sacred to their story and community. Those were all put into national parks. Mm -hmm. So they can't so. be bought. So they can't be bought. And you even have to apply through the national park systems for a permit to use the land, right? Yep. Charlotte Black Elk, who I mentioned before, her great-grandfather was Nicholas Black Elk, a very famous holy man. Black Elk Speaks is written about him. There is a forest in the Black Hills that's a national forest, Black Oak National Forest. She is Charlotte Black Oak. She has to apply for the permit. And they continue, they might get 50, 60 use permits every year. And she tells a story about one year, about a decade ago, there were 60 something permits applied for, 58 of them were given. Mm -hmm but they denied her. So when it is quite clear that she's that family, right? They know that. Yeah. They know that. So I would certainly say that most of us hope with having Deb Holland in now as the Secretary of the Interior that we're going to see some major changes happening with her coming in and kind of giving, you know, multiple giving some leeway to indigenous peoples who those are their sacred sites right yeah your whole story your whole narrative about who you are your identity as a people ha are intricately linked to this land eagle poem by joy harjo to pray you open your whole self to sky to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you. And know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know, except in moments steadily growing and in languages that aren't always sound, but other circles of motion. Like Eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, circled in blue sky in wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this, and breathe, knowing we are truly blessed because we were born, and die soon within a true circle of motion, like eagle rounding out the morning inside us. We pray that it will be done in beauty, in beauty. Thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I always love to talk about this topic.
For this episode's Black to Nature camp book segment, I'm going to offer a few comments and then a recommendation. The world is often mean. It is mean of circumstance and of understanding. And from my experience, it is often ready to rip you to shreds for the slightest or no infraction at all. As a person with a heavy trauma burden from childhood, I have experienced and witnessed a lot of pain and suffering. As a meditator, I am always trying to move into a place of deeper understanding and compassion because I believe that that is the place that helps me heal. One thing that makes it very hard to heal is that we so rarely have time to simply rest and process what has happened to us. Capitalism means that even when your father has died in your home, right in front of you as mine did, you have to get up and go to school. It means no matter what has happened to you, you only get a few days if you're lucky, and then it's back to acquiring the skills to be a worker, as in going to school, or back to work. I was five years old when my father died, and I remember returning to my nearly all-white Catholic school within a week of his death. I wouldn't talk. The next year, at the end of first grade, they weren't sure I was ready for second grade. The nuns tried to get me to answer the assessment questions. Because I wouldn't answer, they kept me in the first grade another year. Maybe I thought I could work some magic in silence, turn back the hands of time, and begin first grade again in the fall, and magically make my father alive again. Later in life, I would become very talkative, because during this period of time, when I was silent and wouldn't talk, I was criticized for this, I was yelled at for this because my not talking was a sign of my wound and it wasn't okay for me to show my wound, not at that time in place in my life. Many seemed more scandalized by my being held back, as they used to say, than about the fact that I'd lost my father under tragic circumstances in my home, that I wasn't even six years old yet and I had seen a dead body and that dead body was my father's. I remember as a child feeling stupid, feeling criticized because I had been held back in the first grade. But I cannot remember being comforted. I cannot remember anyone saying that I should have all the time and space that I needed to mourn and to grieve and to heal. Sometimes I practice an exercise where I go back to the site of a past trauma and relive it in my mind under the conditions I think would have led to greater healing. I often imagine myself being able to go spend a year with trusted relatives, a gathering of old women who live in the middle of a fragrant pine forest. They would let me sleep and let me cry, and we would go on long, silent walks through the tall evergreens, and sometimes we would talk and sometimes we would walk in silence. They would cook good food for me, show me how to harvest all the things they were growing, and keep an open door for when I wanted to wander off and be alone and the world would be safe for this. When I was ready to go back into the world of people, healed enough to know that no one else could ever know or experience what I experienced, and that I could never know what other people know or have experienced, because we all have our traumas, understanding that people would, without realizing it, press on my wounds, and that I needed to do my best not to press on other people's unseen wounds. They would let me go, 
and I would come back into the world with wiser eyes. This is what I am touching when I seek out wilder spaces. When I am backpacking, this is where I am in my mind, a healing, quiet space with generations of unseen ancestors attending to me. I go for the silence and for the fact that there is nothing to do but simply be. I dwell in these backcountry places with the knowledge of the brutal history that produced my presence here and with the hope that one day the stewardship of this land will be back in the hands of the indigenous people. Backcountry camping is an entirely different enterprise than car camping, which is mostly what I've talked about on Black to Nature previously. You need to get a backpack that can carry a tent, water, whatever clothing you need, a flashlight, cookery, whatever food you're going to eat, and all of your necessities, because for backcountry camping, you have to hike into the woods. Many state and national parks have areas designated for backcountry camping, which is always free of charge. Sometimes you have to leave your information, such as your name, the license plate number of your car. I have done backcountry camping in a number of places near my home. Thus far, my favorite has been Red River Gorge in Kentucky. The backcountry camp area I like best is called Council Flats. If you get a backcountry map of Red River Gorge, you'll find it there. You hike in about a mile, downhill, and then there is a large area with lots of little nooks where you can camp in total privacy. There is even a stream nearby that is perfect for filtering your water if you're staying for a week or longer. The limit set by the park is two weeks, then you have to move camp. It is my dream to one day lead groups of people who would normally never go, but who want to, on silent, multi-day backcountry camping trips. If you think you might want to do that, feel free to reach out to me on my Facebook page, Black and Country. Perhaps we can get a group together. I abhor the history which produced national parks and state parks as recreational spaces. I do not think that native stewardship of this land, which is what I think needs to happen in this country, means no one else will ever be able to enjoy it. That nightmare of exclusion is a Western paradigm, not an indigenous one. In the same way that I hiked the Via Francengena in Tuscany over several days, respecting the land and the laws set by the people of Tuscany, I dream one day of backpacking in this country as a place stewarded by the indigenous people. On the next episode of Black to Nature, I'll talk to the author Anissa J. Wardy about her new book on nature in the works of Toni Morrison, and my best friend Candace Jenkins will interview me about my book, Black to Nature, Pastoral Return and African American Culture. Thank you for listening, and thank you to Sandy Garner for giving us so much rich information on this episode. If you're listening to this on the day of Thanksgiving or the day after Thanksgiving, I invite you to take a few minutes and read about the true history of this day, and I encourage you to subvert the agenda of this holiday and seize the day for some much-needed rest so that we can collectively heal in order that we might meet the problems of our world fresh and ready to make change. Until next time, keep on blooming. <laughs>